That is the most unbelievable catch that I've ever seen. A full-blooded sweep shot, and somehow he's come up with it. There's no way in the world the naked eye could keep track of this one. All one could see was that uh, he seemed to hang... He must have hit it straight into his hand. As he buckled up, I think it buckled in into him. Just have a look at this. As it goaded, there's Slater taking evasive action here. It goes straight into that, and he's clung on to it. Have a look at that. He's got it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Good morning, and welcome to Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. This is episode 319. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. Sam, how's your how's your mop doing? <laughs> Uh, that's the joke in that is that of course I don't have a mock and, uh, the, um, the way that I know that's a good joke is that when you said it, I literally had no idea what a mock was for like, <laughs> well, that's what we in the, like in the mock draft, in the mock drafting industry, uh, we just call it a mock. Uh, yeah. Can you, can we, can we talk about <laughs> mock drafts? Cause I can, I mean, I can't, has yeah. there ever been a, a less efficient, uh, undertaking in human history in terms of information exchange or utility of information relative to time devoted to 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 coming up with and and disseminating that information as as the mock draft yeah well i guess um I guess if you think about it as just a framing device where where the, the, the actual goal is to write words about players right. uh, and to you know to describe them and explain what they're good for but uh, most people aren't going to read about just any player you have to give them some incentive to read it you need to you need to make it real in their so lives isn't it, I mean so, isn't a ranking incentive enough I don't think a I don't think a rank I mean a ranking is certainly useful because when you actually get when your team gets the player that they that that no mock draft had them taking you want to be able to look and see whether right. uh, the player was better but in advance the if you're a if you're a Brewers fan uh, and you're picking you know 14th uh, you don't want to read about every player you're kind of lazy or you you know you can't keep all these names in your head or you're, you're just not that into this which would describe which would describe me um, except for the Brewers fan part. So you have to, um, but if you tell somebody, "Ooh, the Brewers are on this guy," then th- then they're going to click on your thing to see what you know what you say about that guy. So I think it's a it's a useful thing from a publishing sense, and I, and I don't just mean in the, in the way that like people click on that thing and read yes, it, which is also right. useful, but it it actually is good for creating a real connection between the reader and the player that they otherwise wouldn't be able to manage. However, that said, mm. that said, it is the weirdest <laughs> thing because not only do, do are, is the track record terrible awful. and then it's fully um, acknowledged by the people doing the mock yes, drafts that exactly. it's awful they yes. don't they don't pretend that there's any real real accuracy no. here they've no. been doing it and for once, a while they know that they're going to get almost everything wrong especially if they can't pin down one if they can't pin down number one yes, then then not only not only does that speak poorly to their ability to pin down two and three and four and five but but there is literally no there's no possible way there's right. the, you you do not know the players that are available at that point it's uh you know it's like trying to put together a puzzle and you not only don't have the box on the cover but you don't have eyes <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i don't know maybe there's Maybe there's value to it in kind of knowing what types of players a team is interested in or what their philosophy in, in drafting is. Maybe you can glean that sort of thing from it, even if the 
results don't play out the way that you mock drafted it. But so I guess you learn things from it that you might not learn from a straight ranking of players. But it's such a such an odd exercise to devote. Yeah, people devote days of their lives and come out with revision after revision over you know a period of a month before the draft and then they put out their final thing on the day of the draft and they update it twice on the day of the draft and then the draft starts and it's just it's just done in yeah. in in a few minutes it's over but yeah but again i mean it's it's also good for the you know it it creates a framing device for your reporting so that you know i would imagine that it's good in incentive for the for the reporter to have a lot more conversations to talk about a lot more players with a lot more teams and uh, so it's this weird thing where it actually does benefit the reporter in his reporting and it does benefit the reader in his reading it just it's this it's this total island of pointlessness in the middle of it and all the benefits are secondhand it's it's a strange thing because it is both absolutely essential and has never has never contributed a lick of value uh you know directly mm-hmm. and also so what you so what if you know where your who your team's getting with pick 20 t- <laughs> i mean it's literally you don't even need to know the guy's name for 4 years okay no. so he's, like why do you need to know it a day right he's he's probably not ever going to play for your team even if your team <laughs> picks him uh, <laughs> so you think you could wait you could wait until the the pick happens at which point you can just start waiting again um, it's weird it's very weird uh, okay so we wanted to talk about an email that we got which is maybe my favorite email that we've that we've gotten uh i know you enjoyed it too we talked on the wednesday email show matt from germany brought up the idea of forming an infield wall uh i guess to to cut off the the batted ball and then we were talking about kind of adapting that idea to distract the batter um and we we kind of concluded that it was crazy that uh, maybe it would kind of work if you if you did it. It would be very distracting if you had a fielder time his dive in front of the the pitch, um, but it wouldn't work because a he might get killed, uh, and also because the umpire would would hate it and would not give you any calls and various other reasons why it seems completely insane. Uh, and then we got an email from Ian uh, from. Dairy, Londonderry, Northern Ireland, uh, where we are very big. And he basically told us that this exists, more or less, in cricket. Uh, the wall is pretty much a thing. Uh, so there is there is a position in cricket called the silly position, <laughs> where, where players, and I'm quoting Ian here, occasionally field extremely close to the batter in positions such as, and I guess it's called short uh, and also called silly, and these players wear extra pads and a helmet because they are standing right in front of the batter. Uh, and the idea is, I guess it's partially to get in the batter's head that there's a fielder crouching right in front of him. And Ian sent us a picture, which is amazing. Uh, the picture is the the picture email is actually better than the original yes. email, right? <laughs> uh, and and I'll 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 upload the the picture to the the BP server and I'll I'll link to it in the podcast post. So you should go right now and look at this picture uh, of the fielder in the silly position, <laughs> standing what maybe 
five feet, four feet <laughs> directly. In a crouch, as though he is the catcher. Yes. He's in a catcher's but crouch with his hands. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, this everything about this screams Monty yes. Python-based uh, prank, yes. right? I mean, Ian is pranking us. <laughs> but it's on Wikipedia. So unless, there is a, unless he yeah. was very dedicated and he went and edited the entry before he emailed us uh, to, to put this over on us, it is a real thing. And I, I almost felt like there, like there had to be a, an, another reason why it was called the silly position. Like I figured maybe the the first batter, <laughs> the first guy to do it was like Sir Reginald Silly or something in 1887, <laughs> and so they named it after him because, I mean, I asked, is it is it called silly because you're standing right in front of the batter where you could get nailed in the face with a cricket ball? Uh, and yes, that is why it is called the silly position. Um, so, so it is there partially to, to get in the, the batter or the, the batsman's head, uh, because there's a guy crouching right in front of him. Uh, and also because I guess if the, the ball bounces off the bat, uh, or bounces off the batsman's pads, you will be right there to get it. And then Ian says, if it looks like the batsman is winding up to take a big hack at the ball, they will take evasive action. <laughs> Uh, which I would really why, like to why, see. I didn't why, actually look to see if I could find a video of this happening, which I should do. Um, anyway. it's It seems like the first thing you would do if you were the batsman is take a big hack at yeah. the ball. <laughs> so I, I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know how it works, right? Don't you just immediately swing for the silly positions position? Uh, I guess, unless that would make you less likely to, to hit the ball. I don't know. It's crazy. Very silly. Uh, and and Ian says it's it's. <laughs> and one of my favorite parts is that they they basically make the rookies do it. Which <laughs> mm. we, we were talking about kind of the veteran rookie relationship the other day in baseball. And I guess there's no real equivalent in baseball. I mean, there's there's hazing, but but on the field there's no hazardous position that you can put a rookie in. Really, I guess. Um, That's true. But in cricket, you can you can make the <laughs> make the rookie play in the silly position where he may get hit in the head with a cricket ball. So amazing, amazing email from Ian, uh, prompted by an email from Matt in Germany. So our international listeners have really stepped it up this week. Um, so what do you want to talk about? Joey Votto. Okay, uh, I want to talk about a couple things I read that aren't related. Okay, goodness gracious, Ben. We've already gone 10 uh, minutes. I know. And, and you've got multiple topics. Well, they're short, and it's the end of the week. Mine is short as well. Okay. I'll start. Okay. Uh, so, Joey Votto, you're aware of the two amazing Joey Votto batted ball facts, I assume? Uh, the one where he never hits a pop-up? Yeah, he's hit. Uh, he basically hits one infield fly a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, roughly speaking, I think it was none in 2010, and then, and then one in each of the last two years. He actually has... Uh, in the last, from 2010 to 2012, he somehow, if I'm reading this correctly, has something on the order of four or five times as many hits on infield flies as outs on infield flies, huh. um, which is amazing. I don't know what that means. But uh, yeah, he basically hits one infield pop-up a year, uh, which is absurd. He has not hit one yet this year, in case you were wondering. Uh-huh. The, the other, other you don't know the other is what, his line drive rate is crazy? No, his uh, he has hit one foul ball into the stands down the right field line in his career. Uh-huh. 
if so did that made sense right yeah which is also uh pretty hard to imagine because he's i mean you know yeah. i mean come on that's insane <laughs> right and he remembers it he's he claims to remember it <laughs> wow yeah. well that's not my topic though. okay my topic is uh, related to that, but today uh, Jeff Sullivan tweeted his spray chart, Je- uh, Joey Votto's spray chart from 2013, and um, it's it's probably after Ross Detweiler. It's probably the second best spray chart I've ever seen. Uh, it's uh, a big a big uh, mass of balls, you know, outs and hits and doubles and airs and stuff uh, to left field and left you know, down the left field line and left center field and, and a few to center field. And then in right field, it's all green. It's, there's, there's all, it's only green. It's only base hits. There's, uh, exactly one red square in right field, mm-hmm. a, probably 40 balls to right field that he's hit mm-hmm. and one out it, one of those balls was an out. And, um, and, and a whole, you know, a bunch of them are home runs and some doubles and some singles. So then I went, uh, I went looking for this one and uh, Baseball Reference described it as a as a line drive, so I figured, oh, well, okay, it's a line drive, not a, not a surprise. So then I went and looked at the line drive, and it was actually a, a, a rocket that he hit that Nate, I think Nate Sherholtz made this tremendous diving catch on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the only out that he has made to right field this year is this tremendous line drive that took a diving catch. And so I just wanted to note this because I, I feel like, I mean, there have been there have been great hitters, of course, in our lifetimes. There are great hitters right now, and Joey Votto might be the greatest hitter in the league right now. But he, you know, he might not be. You could certainly make a case for two or three other guys. Um, but I don't know that we've ever, or at least in a in a long time, seen a hitter uh, who had such a clear plan and so much ability to. Um, to enact this plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there are certainly guys like Miguel Cabrera is able to hit pitches that you throw at him. He's strong. He uses the whole field. He's just, he's very talented. He's a very talented man, but you know, that's, that's what, that's his, that's his plan is to, you know, to hit balls hard. Joey Votto, it, it just feels like is this whole other level of planning, preparation and execution that, um, is, it seems almost unheard of and almost impossible because baseball is supposed to be a lot harder than this. Um, and so knowing what we know about Joey Votto, his incredible, incredible, incredible ability to do with the ball what he wants, he's also going to lead the league in on-base percentage for the fourth consecutive year this mm-hmm. year, by the way. Um, uh, he's about to turn 30. He's you know, maybe on a Hall of Fame track or maybe not. He's kind of at this point in his career a bit like David Ortiz was in in total production. Um, and, you know, he's he's going to be 30. He's going to be a first baseman. The bar for offense at first base is, is extremely high. Um, and, you know, you could... You, he's got he's basically a 30-win player right now. He, he essentially needs to double that to be a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, knowing what you know about his style and his ability... Um, does this make you more confident about his ability to age than you would a player who is simply talented and able to hit? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, not to a, a tremendous degree. I mean, I feel like, I don't know, it's easy to, to get seduced by that sort of thing maybe. Um, and think, well, he has this incredible control over what he does, so he will simply defeat age somehow he will 
he'll compensate and he'll adjust and he'll find some new way to to succeed when his skills start to erode. Uh, and maybe he will. I, I guess I would think that it's more likely that he will than than the typical player. Um, but who knows? I mean, guys get hurt and they look really good one year and then suddenly they look old all of a sudden and no one saw it coming. Um, so I wouldn't have a tremendous amount of confidence in his ability to, to defy the normal aging curve. I, I guess, I mean, Ichiro is sort of a similar player, maybe, in that he seems to have a clear plan or he has an ability to put the ball where he wants it. Uh, and I guess he, I mean, he has aged well, um, even though he's looking sort of old now. Uh, but he kind of had a different skill set and the speed and the defense and all the different things that he did where you would normally say that a player who fits that profile would age well. I don't know if Vado really has that so much. Um, but I guess for a for a player who fits his profile or close to fits his profile, then yeah, I guess having a, a greater awareness of what you're doing would would help probably to some extent. Yeah, Ichiro's a good example. I uh, the the guy I was maybe thinking of is the closest thing in in recent history uh, is Joe Maurer, mm-hmm. uh, who similarly has this incredible control of the strike zone. Um, you know, maybe the best control of the strike zone in baseball right now. Maybe I don't know. Maybe not. Um, and and Maurer, um, there was a point when he was you know when he was the MVP in two thousand nine, where it just you know felt like he was going to be um, you know, a 10-win player for, or whatever, 8-win player forever because mm-hmm. you just couldn't get him out. And, you know, he's, reg- I mean, it, I guess he, he's still a great hitter. He's still one of the best hitters. Um, but, yeah, there is always the temptation to judge guys based on, um, you know, their, their peak. Mm-hmm. And, of course, even guys who are extremely talented do have peaks and they all decline. Um, and so I, I don't know, I guess I, I was thinking about Votto in relationship to, uh, or in relation to Josh Hamilton, mm-hmm. yeah. who you wrote about this off season as, as a guy you identified as, as likely to fall off a cliff based on his approach at the plate. Um, and, um, I mean, it makes sense that Hamilton would be in danger of falling off a cliff because when you swing the way he swings, it, it feels like, you know, you have a low margin for losing bat speed, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it might be the same with Votto. I mean, it might be if you do have a, a, a plan that relies on you having this ability that um, it might not be that easy to adjust your plan when you lose 5% of that ability when you lose a little bit of bat speed. So uh, it might not actually be an advantage. It feels, though, it feels, if I, yeah, I don't know. If, if, if like, I, I, I think right now I just I just want him to age well. Like, yeah. I want to watch him do this for a long time and, and see what he can do. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, you can certainly envision ways that his 30s aren't, uh, you know, quite so glorious, just as you can with with any baseball player. I mean, he did hit, you know, he's a first baseman who hit something like 10 home runs last year and is on pace to hit 20 this year. So, uh, you know, it's not like he's necessarily the greatest hitter ever. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, he, it's he feels like it, I mean, Giambi also was a guy who had this incredible control of the strike zone and was for a while it was you just couldn't get him out and he was walking 100 and some odd times. He had like a 480 on base percentage, but it, it didn't quite feel quite so cerebral. There's something about Votto that makes you want to root for him because it seems. Um, just so deliberate mm-hmm. and 
and maybe you know he's almost maybe it's just because he expresses himself better or he talks about it more with the media or something i mean maybe we're biased mm. towards a, a guy who gives a better explanation or, or lets us see more of his thought process or something yeah yeah maybe maybe we are i'm sure we are i know we mm. are yeah it's one of our weaknesses yeah. Uh, okay. So the first thing I, I wanted to mention yesterday, but didn't get a chance. Did you see the thing that Dirk Hayhurst wrote? No. Uh, so he wrote a story. Unless you're talking about six years ago. And <laughs> no, the, the, not the his book. best sellers, uh, but his, his most recent post at his website, uh, DirkHayhurst.com. He told the story. His post was called, My Life is a Lie. Uh, and he told this really interesting story about how when he was in college, um, Basically, he was he was an effective college pitcher in 2002. He was the ace uh, on his college staff. He was told by an Indian scout that he should expect to go in the first 10 rounds. He thought he was going to be drafted for sure. Uh, he was not drafted that year at all. So he came back in 2003, and he was still in college. He didn't understand what happened. He kind of kept asking people why he wasn't drafted and why he was told he would be drafted and then wasn't. And didn't really get a satisfying answer, but from what he could glean, it was that he didn't really have a third pitch. He was just a two-pitch pitcher, fastball and curveball. Uh, he was effective in in college at Kent State, but I guess people didn't think he was very projectable. He hadn't shown any any sort of third pitch to go with those two pitches, so he was advised to come up with new pitches and mix them in. So he started trying to throw these things that he had really never thrown before in his life. Uh, and he said, I was told that when the right counts and situations presented themselves to make sure scouts could write down more than fastball slash curveball. Uh, and so my entire 2003 season was one of waste pitches that looked like backed up sliders and tumbling splitters and changeups that were about as deceptive for my fastball as a fake mustache. Um, and so he tells this story about a scout from the Padres who uh, came up to him after a start when he hadn't thrown his slider. I guess he would, he had been experimenting with the slider and this scout thought it could be a good pitch for him, but uh, the scout saw him pitch and I guess he was just throwing his two pitches. So the scout asked why he didn't throw his slider in that start. And Hayhurst basically, I mean, the real reason was that he didn't really have a slider. But he didn't want to say that, so he just lied, and he said that he had a blister on his finger. Uh, and as it happened, he actually had a Band-Aid on his finger, which was not really part of the plan. It was just serendipity. Uh, he had a cracked fingernail from throwing a, a, a two-seamer or something. Uh, so it had nothing to do with why he hadn't thrown a slider. He just didn't have one. So uh, he convinced the scout that he hadn't thrown the slider because he had a blister, uh, the scout said, oh, sorry to hear that. I wrote down in my last report or whatever that you had good command and a budding slider. Uh, and apparently Hayhurst said that on the day that the scout had seen him, he had thrown two curveballs sideways by accident. <laughs> and the, the scout thought it was a, a new pitch or something. Um, and so he's like, yeah, the, the blister. Uh, and then the scout said, I'm just glad to know you still have it. I think it could be a real separator for you. And then Hayhurst was drafted by the Padres. So his, his story is basically that he lied his way into getting drafted by pretending he had this pitch and just hadn't thrown it. Uh, and I, I wondered how often this sort of thing happens. 
because it seems like that that kind of thing where a scout goes to a player and gets that extra intel is is sort of seen as as the ways in which as a way in which scouting can be a, a separator like you know the that scout probably filed that report to the Padres and said he had a blister that's why he wasn't throwing it and the Padres maybe thought that they knew something that other teams didn't and that other teams had written Hayhurst off thinking that he didn't have this pitch and really they got this scoop because they had a great scout go talk to him um and you you hear that sometimes like if you know, someone will ask, well, why did this guy struggle at this level or something? And and a, a, a scout or one of the, the people who talks to scouts on the Internet will say, oh, well, the team told him not to throw that pitch or, you know, he was supposed to be working on this other pitch. And that's why he struggled or that's why he didn't throw it that much because he was under specific extra- instructions not to throw it, that sort of thing. I hear that from the time to time. And I always think, oh, that's really useful information. I never would have known that. Um, but this person who talked to scouts got this, this great Intel. Uh, so now I can kind of adjust my expectations accordingly. And now I don't know whether to, to trust it any, anymore. I kind of always just took that at, at face value. I assume that was always true. Uh, maybe it, it is usually true. Maybe it's almost always true, but I guess it's not always true. Not every, not every time they're probably, I mean, if Hayhurst did this, then I would assume that. Other fringy pitchers did the same thing. There's certainly a lot of incentive to do it. Um, so I don't know. I don't have a question or a comment or anything, but it was a cool story. And I will think about it in the future. I just sent you an article that Malcolm Gladwell wrote a couple of years ago about the value of espionage and whether it actually is worthless because uh-huh. there's so many lies. Uh-huh. Yeah. And lies upon lies and that you're just as likely to get bad information and overvalue it because you think that you've discovered great information. Like like this slider, would, I mean, it basically it wasn't, um, if, if, well, how to put this, uh, if this Padres scout had simply, you know, come across the information, uh, you know, like in a press release, if Dirk Ahers had put out a press release to all 30 teams saying, mm-hmm. I have a slider, I'm working on it, etc., no team would have taken it all that seriously, but this scout thought that he, like you sort of said, he he thought he had discovered right. this thing, he got he an thought edge. it was inside yeah. information, and so because of that, perhaps overvalued it. Thought I've got to do something with this information. <laughs> can't can't waste an edge when you when it comes to yeah. you. Um, so and yeah, whenever you hear this information, it's either coming from the player or it's coming from the team, right? The player development people, and and they have the same incentive to to pump up their prospects or or explain away their bad performance, even just to increase their trade value or whatever. So I mean, it's always, I guess, coming from someone who has a a motive to lie about that sort of thing. Not that they always are, not that they even usually are, but. But now that will be in the back of my head, I guess. Uh, And then the other thing I wanted to mention was something that I mentioned to you earlier today. Uh, You wrote an article on Wednesday about lineup construction and how it hasn't changed at all in the last hundred years or so, really. If you you look at the roles that are typically assigned to each lineup slot, they're pretty much the same. Uh, You tried to see whether number two hitters, prompted by a, a listener question, you you tried to see whether number two hitters have gotten better, whether teams are more likely to put their best hitters there. And 
seems like the evidence is circumstantial at best that there has been any real change in philosophy there. And then uh, Wednesday night, there was kind of a, a very sudden change with the Royals, where Ned Yost uh, came out and said that he he asked the team's stat guys basically to make an optimal lineup for him. Uh, he he asked them to look and see whether there was any edge they could exploit um, to take advantage of matchups and right ready lefty matchups, not pitcher batter matchups and. And uh, they kind of overhauled the Royals lineup so that one day Alcides Escobar was batting second for the Royals in Ned Yost's lineup. The next day he was batting ninth uh, and Eric Hosmer was batting second. So this was basically the change you were looking for happening on that same day by coincidence where the manager went to the front office and said, do this scientifically instead of traditionally. And... I, I would guess that it happened basically out of desperation that the Royals had been shut out the night before. Uh, they had been averaging 3.4 runs a game basically since the beginning of April. They were 9-22. and 22. They had the second worst offense in the American League. And I guess he figured it, it can't really get worse. Might as well see if we can get any kind of edge here. Um, and it, I, I wonder, I guess, why it takes uh, extreme circumstances to make this kind of change? Why does it take a, a desperate manager who's maybe trying to save his job or at least salvage his team's season to be pushed to the brink of not scoring at all for over a month to have to go to his his front office? I, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's good. I mean, good for Ned Yost for, for making use of that resource and cooperating and, and kind of ceding some of the manager's traditional authority uh, to the front office and to a bunch of, of stat heads. Um, but I wonder why, why it doesn't happen more often. And I guess, uh, is this basically a glimpse of the future? Is this what's going to happen uh, for teams that are not struggling and, and not the Royals that it will at some point become the new norm? Uh, it, uh, one of the things about lineup arguments that gets brought up anytime you talk about lineup arguments is that it's a fairly small, um, it's a fairly small advantage that you're going to, you're going to gain. And it's also a fairly certain one. And so that, that works as an argument for it. I mean, if you're, there's no, there's no reason not to take a small edge. Small edges are what, you know, what you, what you've got in this world. But, um, from a manager's perspective, if you're, if you're going to do something radical, um, the lineup is sort of a place where you're not going to get big rewards from that radical decision, and yet the the average fan is like obsessed with lineups, and so it's a place where you could potentially get, um, uh, you know, you, you could get a lot a lot more focus on it than you want. I mean, it's basically bullpens and lineups are what the average fan looks at, mm-hmm. right? I mean, average fan is obsessed with who the number one starter is and who the number two starter is and who the number three, and that has no value whatsoever. So. Um, the so I mean I, I don't know I, I hate to always fall back on this presumption that managers are all terrified of being criticized but um, I mean I'm terrified of being criticized in my life and so it makes sense to me that a manager would would sort of pick and choose where he wants to stand alone and and it is 
kind of an odd place to stand alone. That's why I think that that's why I looked at number two hitters because it seems to me that the number two spot is the natural place for the ultimate lineup revolution to begin in a in a very small way, mm-hmm. because there's not that much difference between batting a guy second and third. A lot of times, I mean, with Batista, it's noticeable, but a lot of times you wouldn't even notice, you know, that this guy has gone from third to second and. Um, you know, you still have protection behind him. You're, you're just, you're just, it's this quiet little move that you get to make that, that paves the way to what is ultimately an, an optimized lineup. Hosmer, incidentally, uh, we, we were, uh, you and I were talking about, uh, whether their lineup is better Mm -hmm. and it's, it's hard to say because we don't know what true talent level we're putting on each player. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't actually know what method they're using to create this lineup because we don't know whether they think Hosmer is a, a I'm, for simplicity, I'll use batting average, a, a, you know, a 260 hitter or a true talent 310 hitter. Um, and uh, so I am looking at their Tuesday lineup, though, and Hosmer had been batting third, so they moved him from third to second. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that at least suggests that, it, I mean, you could see a, a situation where Yost basically went to them and said, how do I make my lineup? And, and maybe they said, well, first tell us who your best hitters are because, uh, you know, Yost. I, I guess if you, in, a, in the spirit of compromise, uh, if you're the stats department, you might you might want to help him organize the lineup, but seed the talent evaluation to him. Mm-hmm. And so clearly, he thinks that Hosmer was you know his best or his second best or his third best hitter because he had been batting him third, and so moved him up to second is consistent with uh, you know a statistically derived lineup. He also swapped Mustakis and Kane. By the way, Mustakis had been sixth because he'd been terrible and slumping. Mm-hmm. And so he, he got moved up to fifth, which split up the righties. Mm-hmm. And then Sa- Sal Perez was bumped up from seventh to third. Yep. So that's the change. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. And and they, but he repeated it today. I don't, you didn't say that. Yeah, same line. Mm-hmm. Um, because it kind of worked, I guess. I mean, they scored four runs with it, uh, which I wonder if they had been shut out again, would he have, would he have changed it again or not? Um, and it feels like it feels like I mean Tony Larusa I forget what it was Tony Larusa did some sort of crazy lineup uh, what oh no 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 uh, he the did the yeah, yeah the no 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 when he in the uh, like in the nineties I think he did the the piggybacking pitchers thing you know like what the Astros are doing oh in the minor yes leagues. and it lasted like so, three days. It, yeah, and it, it just—it always seems like whenever a manager does try something interesting like this, like it, they just happen to pick the—you know—the three days that the team gets blown out fourteen to yeah. one. It feels like at some point we should get one of these things that leads to like an eleven-game winning streak, so we can actually see it play <laughs> out. But it never happens. So uh, the uh, Royals won today, so maybe we'll get to see it play out. In, in a way, I mean, doesn't it make a manager less? open to criticism if he I mean if he says well our, our stat guys made this lineup I mean I guess then you could say well why did you ask the stat guys to make the lineup but if people are mad at him already for the way he's organizing his lineup then he can kind of pass the buck in this case and say well our front office says it's the best lineup so yeah I don't know I don't I don't really know how to judge Ned Yost in this situation <laughs> yeah, okay all right, uh, we're done. Uh, email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We will get to your questions next week. Have a wonderful weekend.